0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Keeping this uh, tradition of having a debate in our program every year, and uh, the debate is really focusing uh, on issues that affect our day-to-day clinical practice, that is controversial, but at the same time, you know, is important uh, in the field of liver disease and uh, related to liver transplant. So, our debate for this year is about anticoagulation for portal vein thrombosis, is something that everybody encounters. So, we're happy to have two heavyweights in doing this debate. You know, the heavyweights, you know, they are the, both the thinnest, but heavyweight. <laughs> Um, so, uh, to, to kick off is uh, Bilal Hamid, many of you know him, um, so he is currently the uh, uh, fellowship director for transplant hepatology, and uh, he has worked very closely with Nora uh, in the NIH-funded uh, NASH CRN, and he also runs as the PI for the acute liver failure study group, as well as many um, ongoing clinical trials. Uh, in cirrhosis and PSC. He's doing really a fantastic job. And Nora um, needs very little introduction, has been the leader in viral hepatitis for so many years. Now she is also leading our uh, clinical research efforts in fatty liver disease, as well as alcoholic liver disease, and has been a terrific mentor for many, many numerous fellows, as well as junior faculty. So uh, Bilal is going to start, and then followed by Nora, and then I don't know how they work this out, but there will be a rebuttal, and so I'll start with Bilal.
2: Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you, Francis. Uh, It's always a pleasure and honor to come back. Um, you know, I used to love debate, but since last year, November, I think I'm done with debates. And but and then from, <laughs> uh, because you know the outcome will be still the same. So no matter what we uh, try to tell, but uh, um, you know we wanted to start with the case, and the topic is whether to anticoagulate or not in patients with portal vein thrombosis. So uh, the case uh, which we recently saw in our clinic is a 48-year-old male with a history of hepatitis C. His MEL score is 8, and he was seen for evaluation for transplant. He has history of ascites, but does not require parasynthesis, Had a variceal bleed about two years back, but subsequently that he was eradicated the varices and has mild hepatic encephalopathy. His imaging including both ultrasound and CT scan showed that he has portal vein thrombosis with cavernous transformation. If you look at his labs, his hemoglobin is 10, his platelet count is 38,000, and his INR is 1.8. So the question is, how many people will start anticoagulation in this patient? You know, who will start anticoagulation? Can you raise your hand? Okay, Nora will have a tough time. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, topic, as I mentioned, that it's anticoagulation. And before we start to talk about portal vein thrombosis, most of you are aware of that hypercoagulopathy is very common in patients with cirrhosis. The incidence rate in different studies of portal vein thrombosis is up to 25%. But there's also an increased risk of venous thromboembolism. In several studies, 2% of hospitalized cirrhotic versus control. The incidence is two-fold higher in cirrhotic than controls. There's also data coming out that ischemic stroke, which when you adjust for the risk factors, are 30% higher in cirrhotic compared to control. So we are learning more and more about this anticoagulation versus procoagulant effect in patients with cirrhosis. And now the more data is showing that hemostasis in cirrhosis is rebalanced but getting more tips towards hypercoagulopathy. So if you look at the different factors of primary hemostasis, so you have the high one williprint factor, high factor 8, low-protein CSS, and antithrombin in patients who have cirrhosis of the liver. And initially, there is a balance, but the balance can be shifted very easily if you have an infection or other and severity of liver disease. So that's why we are seeing more and more hypercoagulable events in patients with cirrhosis. But now the topic is portal vein thrombosis, and I'll take the side that why we should avoid anticoagulation. When you look at the prevalence of portal vein thrombosis, if you look at the different studies, it can be 5 to 26%. But most of the studies, the data are coming on from patients who are listed for liver transplantation. When you look at the incidence of portal vein thrombosis, this is a study by a French group. They have about 1,200 patients, and the study was screening for HCC. They were doing ultrasound every three months. And what they found out, that during the screening phase, the five-year cumulative risk of portal vein thrombosis was about 10%. Interestingly, patients who had NASH as an etiology had more risk factors for developing portal vein thrombosis. But the interesting finding for this study was that most of these portal vein thrombosis were partial, and regression or resolution was very common, which was seen up to 70% of the cases. And so, you know, when we talk to the patients, that, you know, there's one thing, what is the incidence? So this is a very good study that prospectively shows that the incidence of portal vein thrombosis is up to 10%. But the bigger question is whether to treat or not to treat the portal vein thrombosis. And there are a lot of factors that are taken into account. The first thing is the natural history of portal vein thrombosis. How many patients will spontaneously have a regression whether it remains stable or whether we treat patients who have progression of portal vein thrombosis, whether it does impact liver disease and status on the transplant and the post-transplant condition, and what is the efficacy and safety of the treatment which are available for portal vein thrombosis. So we can go to the guidelines to see if there's anything that's been recommended. The ASLD guideline, which are old in 2009, did not say anything, and if you look at it, it said that in the absence of robust data, recommendation for and against routine anticoagulation cannot be made, and decisions need to be made by case-by-case by case series. So not very helpful. Easel came out the more recent guideline in 2006, and again, it has some idea that they recommend anticoagulation, and but they can continue the anticoagulation for six months, but the data and the studies are very few, and it's not well done. So, what about the natural history of portal vein thrombosis? So, when you take the portal vein thrombosis and see the patients who were not treated, these are without treatment. This is the studies from eight different uh, studies, and they have about 316 patients. So, about 44% of patients have complete or partial recanalization without getting any treatment. And only 20% had progression of portal vein thrombosis. So there are few patients, about 20% based on this study, will have a progression of portal vein thrombosis who may be a candidate for treatment. Now the other thing is that whether the portal vein thrombosis will worsen your liver disease because that's always the concern, whether it will worsen your portal hypertension. And the question is, whether which comes first? Whether it's just the decompensation of liver disease that caused the portal vein thrombosis or portal vein thrombosis is the cause of it. Again, I go back to the French study, which is the only prospective study which uh, has a large 1,200 patients. And this study shows that portal vein thrombosis is not associated with progression or hepatic decompensation. And the factors we all know, which is like H, time. Albumin and platelet were the risk factors of progression of the disease. So these are different hazard ratio that were seen it, and their discussion and their recommendation again was that this portal vein thrombosis does not impact the disease progression. So what happened at the time of transplant, right? When their different studies shows that at the time of transplant. 76% of the portal vein thrombosis are partial. It's only again 24% when the surgeon saw that it was occlusive. And there are about 30 to 40% of portal vein thrombosis are only diagnosed, which are missed by ultrasound or other imaging, only seen at the time of liver transplantation. So the other question is what is the impact of portal vein thrombosis? on the patients who are waiting for liver transplantation, and what will happen the post-transplant. And, you know, when we look at the studies, there are two different kinds of studies. One is using large databases like UNOS or SRTR, and other are single-center study. And we have to interpret most of the data very cautiously, because you can make an argument in either way. One of the study was was well-coded, and I think Dr. Tur- Turo will also kind of talk about it. It's the study which has to look at the waiting list for liver transplantation. Big study, there were about 45,000 patients who had no portal vein thrombosis and about close to a thousand patients who had portal vein thrombosis, about two percent in the whole series. What it shows that the portal vein thrombosis did not have a higher mortality on a wait list. However, this data also shows that patients who had portal vein thrombosis had a higher post-transplant mortality Again, most of these studies, if you look at these UNOS or SRDR, does not tell you whether it's a complete or partial portal vein thrombosis, whether they were on anticoagulation, and there are a lot of other factors. But there's another study by UNOS, which was uh, published in 2015. And again, a big study. They have taken patients who did not have HCC, but just cirrhosis of the liver. This study of about 66,000 patients. And at the time of listing, there are about 2,200 patients who had portal vein thrombosis. And, you know, surprisingly, based on the adjusted hazard ratio, they have a decrease in the pre-transplant mortality. Again, bringing up the point that even portal vein thrombosis, even if it does not improve the mortality, it does not worsen the mortality on the waitlist transplant patient and whether we need to do something for these patients who have portal vein thrombosis. Also, the other important thing is when we look at the study which shows that the post-transplant outcome is worse, some of the studies have shown that the first 90-day mortality is increased after liver transplantation. When we look at the more what kind of a surgery or what kind of anastomosis actually done at the time of transplant is very important. When we talk to the surgeon, it's about the physiological churn, whether we can do end-to-end anastomosis. And there was a recent study... In 2014, with a single center study, which has about 174 patients, 12% with portal vein thrombosis. And they were able to do 149 patients had physiological, which we call end-to-end anastomosis, and 25 had non-physiological. If you look at the survival, patients who had physiological chun had and compared to no portal vein thrombosis were very comparable. It's the patient who the surgeons were not able to do a physiological shunt are the one who had poor outcome. So now we're lucky to have amazing surgeons at UCSF who can do thrombectomy at the time of transplant and also to end, to end anastomosis. So most of the data, which are big SRTR, it's impacted by what the centers are and what kind of a surgery they are doing at the time of transplant. But there are some patients who have an occlusive or progressive portal vein thrombosis who needs to be treated? And what are the options we have available? So we do have anticoagulation, and the other option is doing the tips. And Dr. Curlin had brought some uh, uh, idea about the tips in portal vein and showed some interesting cases. So when we look at the anticoagulant, which I do not recommend to use in patients with cirrhosis, what are the issues? So one is low molecular weight heparin. And the problem is it's very inconvenient and we see poor compliance because most of the patients don't like to inject and you know for every two times a day for many, sometimes six months, sometimes a year. You most of our patients have renal issues and sometimes they have and this dose have to be adjusted in patients who have renal dysfunction, and there is reports of heparin induced thrombocytopenia. The vitamin K antagonists are warfarin. It requires very close monitoring. It cannot distinguish between the INR resulting from cirrhosis or versus when the patient is on Coumadin. And also, what is the safe INR we should aim for? Some of the recommendation is that INR should be one time, what, 1.0 above whatever it is, but there is no guidelines. It altered the metabolism as a result of liver dysfunction, and also there's a lot of drug and drug interaction. And the last one is this new agent's which are direct oral anticoagulant, which is called 2 And there's a lack of data in cirrhosis, and none of the study included cirrhotic patients. And right now, if you talk to it, it is not recommended in patients with cirrhosis, but we are seeing more and more, and there are only some retrospective data that's coming out for it. So all these medications have issues. But you know, when you look at most of these studies are very retrospective and very small sample size. Most of the studies have included 19 to 55 patients. The definition and extent of portal vein thrombosis is not defined very well in most of the studies. And different anticoagulation again. Most of the study we see either use low molecular weight heparin or vitamin K antagonists, And the improvement is very variable. It's about forty to eighty percent patients have improvement on these medications, and lastly, there are patients twenty percent of in some fifteen percent in some studies will still progress on these medications. The other thing is when to start anticoagulation, whether it's impact the resolution of portal vein thrombosis. so there's one study looking at it the timing of anticoagulation, and they say that whether you have complete repermeation of portal vein, and this small study, including twelve patients who have uh, repermeation and, and compared to twelve who did not have, and they say that the timing—if you start the medication or diagnose less than six months—these are the patients who actually have benefit to get complete recanalization. Most of our patients, some have chronic, and we, by the time we start anticoagulation and eradicate the virus, is already more than six months. So, if you need to do it, you have to do it very quickly. If you compare, a lot of studies are out there, and when they use anticoagulation for six months, and I think Dr. Tiro will talk more about it, the one thing I wanted to point towards is the bleeding complication, which in different studies are from 5 to 27%. However, their meta-analysis shows that these patients are not at increased risk of bleeding. However, when you look at the studies more carefully, the patients who actually have increased risk of bleeding are the ones who have platelet counts of less than 50, and a lot of my patients actually have platelet count of less than 50, they have kidney disease and severity of liver disease if they have child C cirrhosis. At the same time, what happened, what kind of, uh, whether it's vitamin K antagonist or low molecular weight haparin, and the definition of bleeding and most of the studies are also not well established. As compared to one of these Spanish trials, which actually have 21 out of 55 patients who received warfarin. And eight of the 11 bleeding episodes were happening in warfarin. If you look at it, they say that bleeding probably not related to anticoagulation, and six of them have varicil bleed. I don't know how they can say it's not related to anticoagulation. However, if you look at the vitamin K, the INR was elevated. So there is some effect and therefore some of the experts say that if you want to use it low molecular weight is much better if patients can take it as compared to warfarin. So if you look at all the results of anticoagulation for portal vein thrombosis, the blue graphs are the one who has no change or extension and pink is when you have improvement. So it's white all over the board. And in summary, Approximately forty to fifty percent of patients will resolve with anticoagulation. So again, it's not hundred percent, it's not ninety, it's not even eighty percent. And the other thing is how long to use it. Because once you stop the anticoagulation, there's a risk of rethrombosis. And all the smaller studies, but up to seven to thirty-eight percent will have a risk, you stop it. And the recommendation is, if patient is on the liver transplant list, you continue this medication until the patient can get a liver transplantation. And the average waiting time is greater than a year in most of the places. So I don't, you know, recommending anticoagulation. So what would I we do? So we'll go with the tips, and I will call Dr. Curlin. And um, so what is the tips, and what is the success? I just got the picture. I think that's the best one. <laughs> So uh, the TIPS in portal vein thrombosis. So success rate is up to 80%. And there are 500 cases in literature. Although most of these cases, the TIPS were not done for portal vein thrombosis, but portal hypertension-related complications. And if you look at different studies, again, it is successful, and it is more and more being used. But there's a latest study in Northwestern Group, and there are two studies which they combine, and they have initially 41, but now 61 patients. So they have 61 patients with portal vein thrombosis who were declined for liver transplantation because of portal vein thrombosis. And they, 48% of these patients had cavernous transformation and 16 with an extension to SMV. And their portal vein recanalization and TIPS were successful in about 98% patient. And at 19-month mark, 92% were still patent. So if you look at this graph, they tried at TEM61. There were only one where they were not able to place the tips. And 24 patients underwent liver transplantation. None of them had post-transplant complication like thrombosis or stenosis. And the surgeons were successfully able to do end-to-end anastomosis in these patients. When you look at the overall survival in this group, it was 82%. And the median MELD is about 15 in this group, but also there are patients who have 18 or 20 MELD. And they looked at it that at one month and three months, the slight increase at one month mark, but after that, the MELD score remains stable. So based on that, there is, you know, we need more data, but this is very positive that TIPS is a good approach in patients with portal vein thrombosis. So in summary... We have to interpret data very cautiously. We have to get very large prospective randomized controlled trial to see with intercoagulation versus placebo what these patients will gonna do. The post-transplant outcome is affected by the type of anastomosis at the time of liver transplantation. If we end up doing end-to-end anastomosis, patients will have the same survival. We have to treat in portal vein thrombosis who are occlusive or progressive portal vein thrombosis and the patients who are on the liver transplant list. Anticoagulation use is long-term and effective only in 50% of patients. TIPS should be considered early in the management of portal vein thrombosis. And TIPS is successful in about 80 to 98% of cases, It's not 100%. So, uh, and in the end, I just want to leave the code. We must understand as it is and not confuse how it is with how we wish it to be. The obvious is sometimes false, the unexpected is sometimes true. Thank you. Okay, the order is uh, pro. Pro, oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you want to use the They wanted to use the arrow. I don't know
3: you. All right, so you guys, it was a little depressing, I have to say, when they did that vote at the beginning. Because actually when, when um, Blyle and I drew straws as to what side we were going to take, I actually thought I got the good side, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so this is actually a, a super interesting area, and I think one where... Um, I think we're going to learn that it's really the devil is in the details. Um, you can look at a lot of studies. They're not the highest quality studies. And I think if you sort of drill down, um, that's where I think you can really find sort of the pearls in terms of what we should do. And I, w- I would say one other thing just from the start. It's just because we don't have all the answers, like <laughs> how long, and, et cetera, isn't a reason to, to not consider it. So I'm going to definitely, I think, by the end of this, maybe get a few of you onto my side, I hope. Um, so. Why to consider um, uh, anticoagulation? I think there's three big reasons. And I'm going to try to share with you the data that support these. One is that it's pretty clear that portal vein thrombosis worsens portal hypertension. And I think there's some data, certainly, to suggest cirrhosis complications. And ultimately, that's relevant for all of us. Um, Bilal already shared with you that it impacts post-transplant outcomes, at least early mortality. And probably the most compelling, I think, to me is that anticoagulation as a treatment is effective and is safe. Um, And while we may not have all the answers about nuances with using it, I think there's quite a lot of data that support that last statement. So I also sort of the chicken versus the egg really comes into play when you're thinking about portal vein thrombosis. Certainly, um, if you look down the left side of the diagram, um, everyone recognizes that cirrhosis is is a cause of portal vein thrombosis. And we know that incidence rate has been quoted to be 10 to 25 percent if you look at sort of one three to five year period. So we, we recognize it a complication. We're going to see it in our patients. And there's really interesting data about the things that contribute to that, um, with NASH now emerging, I think, as an independent risk factor for, for portal vein thrombosis, maybe related to BMI, but portal flow also being well recognized now in more of the studies. And because it's linked with the severity of portal hypertension, this is where it's unclear sometimes if, if the portal hypertension might be contributing to cirrhosis or are they just going hand-in-hand hand together. But I'm going to show you some data that says that I think that thrombosis and portal vein thrombosis can actually make worse cirrhosis and accelerate decomplication the, the complications of cirrhosis. And therefore, that, that becomes a rationale for us to think about treating it. Even though we might be a little bit uncomfortable of of doing it in patients with uh, cirrhosis. So, um, when I trained back in Toronto many, many years ago, Ian Wanless was really a pioneer of this idea that microemboli or micro, sorry, microthrombi um, were actually causative of fibrosis and ultimately cirrhosis, that there's this microcirculation where we get areas of the liver and he did this he's a pathologist and so he sectioned hundreds of livers and over time recognized that when you looked at cirrhosis that what you see is that where there's a patent hepatic hepatic vein that there was really not much in the way of scarring and when there was a thrombotic or occluded hepatic vein Um, um, then they would see that there was kind of fibrotic area around it. Sort of the idea that microthrombi could actually precipitate or or propagate fibrosis and cirrhosis. And there's now lots of animal data as well that support that. Um, And so the concept here is that when you're thinking about thrombosis, portal vein thrombosis is in the extrapatic um, vessel is sort of definitely one contributing cause to the portal hypertension and the complications that might ensue. But I think we're increasingly interested in what's happening really at the microscopic level um, at, the, at the smaller veins and within the liver itself and whether increased resistance there can also be occurring. And that really a manifestation of seeing portal vein thrombosis is also telling us something about the microcirculation and the patient's risk for worsening decompensation. And this is, I think, a very evolving area. And, and I think one of the, um, the uh, data that support this is where you take both animals, and then I'll show you human, human data, and you put the uh, individuals that aren't, don't have cirrhosis um, or have cirrhosis and put them on anticoagulants, you can show that you can, in this case, get decreased activation of the hepatic stellate cells, which are the sort of harbingers of uh, fibrosis, and you can actually get decreased in microthrombotic uh, formation. And this is in a, um, a rat model. But there's been a human study that I think is really very, very impressive that's been done. This was a prospective study in which they took individuals who didn't have thrombosis, but they had cirrhosis. And what they did was randomize those patients to getting anoxaparin or or nothing controls for 48 weeks. And then what they looked at in that population is on the left, the rate of portal vein thrombosis, but more importantly, the rates of decompensation and survival. And you can see that in this group of patients that getting anticoagulation actually minimized their risk for getting portal vein thrombosis, but more importantly, decompensation and and improved survival. With The concept being that really providing anticoagulation actually probably has some benefit, not just in not getting a portal vein thrombosis, but again at the level of the microthrombi. And the study went one step further and actually looked at b- markers of both bacterial translocation and inflammation, shown here. And again, the group that got the enoxaparin uh, anox- um, had less bacterial translocation, had decreased markers of inflammation. Again, sort of telling us that it's sort of turning off this cascade of factors that we know can influence one's risk for decompensation. So I'm going to sort of make the argument that I've got the pathophysiology on my side (laughs) for why anticoagulation may be beneficial, because we see it even in this patient who doesn't have portal vein thrombosis. So uh, sort of my starting point is then it's plausible that portal vein thrombosis can make portal hypertensive uh, complications worse, including at the microcirculation level but then I'm gonna go through now what is the clinical data to support this. And uh, Bilal already showed you this study, but this is where I want to get down to this concept of the, the devils in the details. So this was this very large uh, French study. It's it's a remarkable study because it's prospective. It's the only one that I is really in the literature, and they followed them with ultrasounds for HCC surveillance and were very diligent about capturing portal vein thrombosis. And what you can see first of all is the incident rate over uh, over the period of follow up was 9.5%, which is right around the number of sort of 10 to 20% at one to. Three years, um, and then if you look down uh, of those that had a portal vein thrombosis on follow up, what they're looking at now is how many of them actually got decompensation and or had progression of their liver disease, and you can see 44% of those that got um, have PVT experienced that versus only 27% of those that didn't get a PVT. So PVD did seem to have something that contributed to the patient's worsening liver disease and decompensation. But, of course, they went one step further, and they said, well, did that worsening of their liver disease happen concurrent with the PVT, after the PVT, or before? And this is where you sort of see that 45% of them, it appeared that the Decompensation occurred before, and 55% happened after. And you'll say, well, that's like a flip of a coin, so maybe it really isn't relevant. But remember, their intervals of following these patients is every six months. So things can happen in between six months. So this timing of what came first is not so precise. And then they went and they looked at it in a multivariate analysis and they said, is progression dependent upon getting a PVT? And you can see here in the, the hazard ratio that your risk for liver disease progression or decompensation is about 50 to 60% higher if you had a PVT versus one that did not. That's the hazard ratio of 1.48 to 1.61. Now, you'll see that that sort of right on the borderline for significance in the univariate analysis but of course, they did adjust it, which was appropriate. Um, and of course, they lost significance. But I'll point out to you that the hazard ratios don't change very much. So that means that even though they're adjusting, that relationship between the portal vein thrombosis and the events isn't really changing, that relationship. And truthfully, they only had a total of about 50 events. So they actually are completely underpowered to be able to actually analyze this in a multivariate way. So, It's a a nice study, but it's flawed. And I would say that the message I want to leave you with is this 50 to 60 percent higher rate of decompensation in this prospective study of individuals who got a PVT. There are some other studies that have looked at PVTs and the risk for ascites, and here uh, are two from a, a systematic review. This was done before the Belgium study, the French Belgium study I just showed you, but in this study, about a two and a half fold higher rate of getting ascites after you get a PVT. So I think the issue of decompensation, risk for ascites, clearly is increased when you have a portal vein thrombosis. And now what about mortality? Um, This is where I I think it gets kind of messy because the data is really not of the same quality of what I just shared with you. This is UNOS data. And the problem with UNOS is that it's incomplete. Um, Not only does it not have the extent of the thrombosis, but it doesn't even capture thrombosis very well. You can see here that in this study, which includes a very big time frame and a very large number of patients, but only 3% of them had a PVT, which we know has got to be lower than what really exists because it's always around 10 to 20%. So they're underreporting. So just sort of take that with a grain of salt. So when they find that PVT is not associated with survival, I would say yes, because you're not really finding all the PVTs. And the other thing with the UNOS data is it depends when they're looking at when the PVTs are present. This particular study, which is the one that's very frequently coded from Barry et al., looked at PVT at listing. But another study that's been very recently published, just in the last month, looked at PVTs in UNOS at listing, and then how many of them got PVTs while they were waiting for their transplant. And you can see it was 4.8% at listi- listing and 5.9% during follow-up. So clearly, things are happening on the list, and if you don't account for that in the analysis, you're going to underestimate the proportion of patients with PVTs. So from my point of view, UNOS is great because it's got lots of numbers, and you can try to look at mortality because you really do have the power. But the problem with UNOS is it's really not capturing PVTs. It's missing them, and so some of the PVT patients are actually in the the no-PVT group, and they have no information really about when those PVTs are occurring. All right, so what about, that's the wait list, so I can't really say much about wait lists to my mind, but what about post-transplant mortality? So it's been hinted already that there's this d- data that does exist that it suggests that if you have a PVT at transplant, that your 90-day mortality is um, going to be increased, and this is one of several studies. This is um, just one. Um, I, I would uh, acknowledge, though, that I think this is um, kind of a moving target because when they look at UNO's data from, like, basically... Uh, 15 years ago, we certainly know that the surgical techniques for dealing with portal vein thrombosis have changed over that time. And so what used to be a kind of a big problem, I think, for most surgical teams is not such a big problem now. But there was a very nice um, systematic review where they really looked at the surgical, the sort of surgical issues. By that, I mean, they looked at what was the extent of the thrombosis um, and, and then sort of what was done in terms of the centers dealing with it. Um, and it became clear from that systematic review, if you look on the left, that the grade of portal vein thrombosis matters a lot. So there's a, a yrdal classification uh, that's been referred to, and it's shown here with grades one through four. And this is really relevant for transplant purposes, where individuals with grade three and grade four um, portal vein thrombosis, which are those that are involving their complete, that's the first thing, and you can see that they're having some extension into the superior mesenteric vein, those are the ones that really were in this analysis shown to be most closely associated with that early post-transplant mortality and to have um, less options available to it in terms of dealing with that in the operative period. So I'm going to conclude, maybe I'm the only one who believes this, but I'd say a complete portal vein thrombosis is bad. And so then the question becomes, what can I do to sort of make that risk that goes with the complete PVT go away? And I'm going to say now, I'm going to focus on the flip side, which is that anticoagulation is safe and effective. Um, I'm very lucky because this would have been a tremendous um, lot of work to review the entire literature, but it's been done for me. It's a very nice systematic review meta-analysis published in Gastro just in the last few months. And here they're looking at... um, um, most, there's a, a wide literature, but there's really only six really well-done studies that can help us look at what does anticoagulation do. And so in terms of obtaining complete recanalization, you can see that there's a much higher odds of doing that if you're on anticoagulation than if you're not. Um, that you have a, a probably borderline in terms of your ability to pre- prevent progression. Um, um, and that there's no increase in variceal bleeding. And indeed, in this meta-analysis, it also showed there's no increase in overall bleeding as well. So um, this is the best quality data we have. It may not be perfect, um, but it does drill down to the details, and it would suggest to us that anticoagulation achieves what we want it to. Maybe not in every patient, but you're more likely to get recannulization, and you're not getting it at the cost of increased risk of bleeding complications. Um, Bilal has already referred to this anticoagulant issue. It's not easy to select the one that's right for your patient. And I think that if I would sort of point to a need for future studies, I would say it's really in better understanding how we choose our anticoagulants. Um, Clearly, vitamin K, is. uh, we struggle with the issue of how to monitor it and um, what INR is right. The low molecular weight heparin really has a good profile in terms of safety, but it's got the hassle of the sub-Q dosing and can't be used in our patients with renal failure. I'm going to show you a little bit of emerging data related to the direct oral anticoagulants, which I think might be really an interesting um, group of drugs for the future, although keep in mind these also have an issue in terms of renal failure as well. Um, this is a, a recently published um, single center, it's a multi-center Spanish experience, but it's all, re, all retrospective. Some of these patients were actually on these direct acting or, oral anticoagulants because they had PVT, but some of them also were on it because they had AFib or, or DVT. But I'm, I'm really just focusing on safety here because these are important. Um, most of their patients had child's pew A or B cirrhosis. They all had creatinine clearances over 50, and the median follow-up is only seven months. So it's very Modest. But you can see that um, in the patients without cirrhosis versus those with cirrhosis, there's no difference in terms of the adverse events, including adverse events that led to discontinuation in terms of bleeding. And bleeding rates overall were very low. In a second study, this is a single center a single Center study, also retrospective, but I thought this was very interesting because one of the purported benefits of the direct-acting oral anticoagulants in the non-PVT literature is that there's a lower risk of intracranial events and other serious bleeds. And interestingly, in this very uh, modest study where they compared traditional anticoagulation, which was vitamin K or, or low molecular weight heparin, versus the uh, direct-acting oral anticoagulants, What they showed here is that there was a lower risk of major bleeds and most significantly a decreased risk of intracranial bleeds. And since that's often a very big issue or concern for us, I think, this is, I think, very provocative in terms of potentially being an option for us for the future. Now, the the quality of the data with anticoagulations and PBTs is problematic, and I'm I'm not going to gloss over the fact that um, it's difficult to get a kind of a concrete message on exactly how to do it. Mostly because the PVTs are very heterogeneous, and so too are how they're using the anticoagulants. But that should not sort of dissuade us from thinking about using them. It really should, I think, just really um, promote us promote the idea of doing more studies to better understand how to do it well. So to summarize, uh, PVT is associated with more severe liver disease and may contribute to worsening uh, of decompensation. Um, it may complicate eligibility for liver transplant, especially if there's extensive portal vein extending into SMB and splenic. That could potentially limit eligibility and certainly will make it more complicated. Anticoagulation is not 100% effective. I think that's pretty clear from the data, but it's more effective than doing nothing. Um, and the bleeding risk is comparable to cirrhotics without PVT who are not um, with, with, cirrhotics with PVT who are not on anticoagulants um, and so and, and actually comparable to non-cirrhotics who who are on anticoagulants. So um, I think that the literature, I, I didn't really go into detail about it, but I do think that there's some suggestion that the low molecular weight heparin may be the best option we have at the moment. So my sort of final slide is the bottom line here. <laughs> and that is, um, first of all, I think it, the data should sort of really make us think that PVT is important. Um, and that we should do surveillance for it and I think that's one of the things that I, I'm not sure really even comes across very well in guidelines is that we should be looking for PVT. And that means when you order an ultrasound you're not just doing an ultrasound, you're doing an ultrasound with Doppler and that cross-sectional imaging that we're always getting uh, a, a really clear report on how the uh, portal of the splanchnic splan- 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 uh, system is, is looking. So surveillance is important. And then if a PVT is identified, then I think it needs management, active management. And that doesn't mean that every patient's going to end up on anticoagulation, but you have to think of what the plan is for your patient. And if you choose to do nothing, you have to sort of understand what the consequences are. And then uh, Bilal and I were happy to take uh, questions. We actually have an algorithm that we put together <laughs> in the end. Um, but, but before... Um, Do you want to make any comments, or should we just do another vote? I don't want to go over on time here. I'm I'm really keen to know if I got, like, one one person to come to my side. That's
1: all. Oh,
3: okay. uh,
0: Just to transplant for the surgeons
1: who would, what they would vote.
3: All right. Okay. I'll be very, very sad if I don't get a few surgeons on my side here. Okay. So for the surgeons in the room, um, how many would um, advocate doing anticoagulation for patients with portal vein thrombosis?
2: Okay, thank you. Thank you, Chris. All right. Okay, uh, questions before we... Marion. So I have a question. Neither of you talked about the patient having
3: varices. Right. Meaning if you're going to do anticoagulation and they in a setting of varices. Right. Coagulate and hope for the best. Well, it's interesting because... I actually looked to find this data um, where, um, in studies where they actually put patients on anticoagulation, did they prophylactically ban before they put them on anticoagulation? And actually, it's a mixed, uh, mixed literature, and um, not every study has done that. And I think the point that Belial hi- um, highlighted is that if you're going to anticoagulate, you probably want to get a Soon. <laughs> You're going to make the decision. And if you can quickly obliterate the varices and get them on anticoagulation, I think that's a great strategy. If it's going to take you six months to get them obliterated, I'm not sure that that's really serving the patient well because the whole benefit of anticoagulation, that window, may, may be less optimal for the patient. The available data would say that um, it's not essential. I think our practice has been to obliterate, but I'll just say the literature would say. And the studies done. They didn't always obliterate before.
2: And also, there is some data that using non-selective beta blocker decreased the flow, and then ideally should be avoided because a lot of time patients had large varices, and we recommend non-selective beta blocker rather than doing the band ligation. So inpatient, if you wanted to put anticoagulation, should try to do band ligation if possible and eradicate the varices first.
0: have this transformation of the oral vein, which means two things. Firstly, it's likely chronic, and secondly, it's not a complete occlusion. And that was what we were voting on initially, and that's a different situation from what Nora said, where she would anticoagulate the complete occlusion. Secondly, just like the debates before November last year, I think we need fact-checking here. And And the reason is that when you presented that study, the large prospective study looking at the development of thrombosis... Bilal said that 10% or so developed thrombosis and 70% resolved. Nora said 44% of them progressed. And so there's either I misunderstood it or there's something lost in translation.
3: It's, It's a matter of maybe us using the same term for two different things. What I'm talking about with progression is liver disease progression. And liver decompensation, not what's happening to the clot.
0: Well, then, then you need a prospective study to look at anticoagulation because in your studies of anticoagulation, 40 to 50 percent improved, but the natural history study, obviously a different population, 70 percent results spontaneously. So you might argue that without a, without a prospective uh, a study, you do better without anticoagulation because you get up to 70 percent resolution. <laughs>
3: Well, that prospective study also shows that there's recurrence as well. So Bilal didn't mention that, but there are recurrence. So that it is a very dynamic uh, process, especially when it's partial. That, that I think, is the kind of key thing there, is that partial is is much more fluid than complete. I think complete is a much, and I did try to emphasize that in my sort of final remarks, is it's the complete that we should be compare, really concerned about. So I think, yeah.
2: Uh, I, I, I agree with Nora that, you know, The most important differentiation is differentiating between partial versus complete thrombosis. And the data, most of the studies have child A and B cirrhotic patients, not the child C. And so they excluded in most of it. And then most of the complete thrombosis we see in child C cirrhosis. So even in the NERI study, the French study, majority of these patients are child A and B. So that's why they have more partial thrombosis. And that's why I think that's where uh, the confusion is whether these patients will spontaneously regress or not.
3: I like the reference to fact checking, however. <laughs>
2: uh, make a in book, that's, that's what I thought.
1: Please. Uh, 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 can you address the frequency
2: of the surveillance with Doppler? And the second is uh, if you're going to
1: take the pro anticoagulation approach, is there a magical pro time and platelet count beyond which you would say, uh uh-uh"? uh? Um,
3: So I think the surveillance is—I mean, it hasn't been formally studied, but uh, the prospective French study, which I think is probably our best prospective study, used every six months. So I think we should, and and I think we should sort of build it into our HCC surveillance, so that we're always looking at the portal system to know if we have something new evolving. And how many times have you seen a report? We're very focused on—is there a focal lesion in the liver—and we sort of miss the fact that oh, now the portal vein is occluded. So I I do think that really just being very aware of that and, and recognizing, because we are getting these imaging studies every six months, and it gives us a great opportunity to see changes that are new. And those new changes are the ones that most can be impacted by, I think, anticoagulation, because we can deal with them kind of in more real time. So, so Bilal and I, so, so now we're going to say that we're sort of together on this a little bit. It was rigged. It was rigged, yeah. But, um, so this is our our suggested algorithm. And, and I, I just recognize that this is a suggestion. But up in the corner, you'll see that we're sort of really high, trying to highlight that doing a portal vein patency assessment with our HCC surveillance studies is a key thing, we think. And if you get a diagnosis of PVT, then I think you know, first you ask yourself, do you treat or not? Is, are they kind of eligible for any kind of treatment? And maybe if they're not a transplant candidate, HCC as a comorbidity, and if they're advanced, that's probably a patient who's not a, an option for any of the things we're gonna talk about. But if they don't fall into that camp, then I think you kind of then go down the algorithm of can, they, can I use anticoagulation, or maybe they should be a TIPS candidate. And I think, you know, I didn't want to mention TIPS because that seems like such a, it is a good one, and I wanted Bilal to cover that. But but this is a really, I think, important kind of new strategy. Um, And sometimes when we have patients where we would like to do something about their portal vein, but we really are not comfortable doing anticoagulation, maybe they've got renal dysfunction, um, you're not sure they're going to be compliant, you know, they've got an actual contraindication to, you know, anticoagulation, like they fall a lot or something. Now we have potentially tips to take into consideration. So that's, I think, worth thinking about. For your patients, of course, male still matters there, and CPT still matters. But this is just our sort of initial suggestion. Bala, you want to make some comments?
2: No, I think uh, that's what, by looking at the literature, by looking at the, I I know, talking to some of the experts who does worry, I think the most important, also the point that which Nora has highlighted, that for all of our liver transplant patients, when if you see a uh, uh, portal vein thrombosis on a scan. I think uh, if you see it on ultrasound, they need a contrast imaging with a CT or MRI, but it should be reviewed and in a multidisciplinary, either your own institution versus ours. But we need to have a combined, just like HCC, I think we should start thinking about more multidisciplinary approach and talking about each patient risk and benefit and whose patients will benefit more with either of these strategies, and even I can say in our group, we don't have consensus, uh, and people do, you know, because it's a data, but I think we have to, until we have better data, I think we need to have our own strategy, and that's what I think uh, Nora and I tried to come up. Again, there would be, but this is, at least both of us agree on this one.
1: <laughs> okay, thank you. My original plan was whoever loses the debate will be uh, taking call next year, but uh, but that plan didn't work because they actually worked together in uh, getting this this consensus.
3: I really I do I'm like, I like I'm very happy to have the surgeons, but I really need more. Okay, so
2: go ahead. Uh, okay, so who will anticoagulate?
3: Okay, I got a few more. I'm really happy. I just needed a few.